0: Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, I'm delighted to be sharing with you this morning and to bring this wonderful series that we've had on Philippians to a conclusion, and we're picking up on a few themes that we've looked at over the weeks and uh, teasing out a point from the reading that we've just had. Just before the reading, the lectern was brought in, and it fell apart. We quickly reassembled it. And I'm hoping that it won't fall apart as I'm speaking. If inadvertently I lean on it and it crashes to the floor, we will keep going and I will um, move it out the way. I'm just warning you because I know it could happen. How exciting is that on a Sunday morning at St. Aldates? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for journeying with us through your word from Paul to the Philippians over these last few weeks. Thank you for all that you've taught us and shown us. And we pray today that uh, you would pull it together and you would continue to speak, us, speak to us and instruct us and reveal yourself to us. Amen. Tentatively at the lectern. In 2017, there was a release of a real blockbuster movie, uh, a musical movie called The Greatest Showman. I'm sure many of you have watched it, and many of you will have sung along to several iconic, wonderful songs that were written for that movie. And one of the standout songs in it is the song Never Enough. The song is actually a response to one of the key characters who makes it. They're in the spotlight. They find the success they've been looking for and the fame and the fortune. But having got there, it's not enough. And they sing this song. Here's some of the lyrics. Join in with me at home. I know whether you're in bed or sat on the sofa, uh, you know this song. You can sing along. I'm not going to sing. Well, I might. Here goes. All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. Those hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough, never be enough for me. Do the singing never, 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 and so on and so on for me, for me, never enough, never enough, never enough for me, for me, for me. Okay, that's enough. Never enough. The author of the song explained its meaning. He wrote this, imagine someone in a castle trying to count all their riches, and it still doesn't add up to enough. It's that kind of moment when somebody isn't really satisfied. Never enough, never enough, never enough, for me, for me. That's an awful lot of never enoughs for me. And we... Uh, have journeyed with Paul, and he is in jail, whether in jail or uh, under house arrest. We know that he is in chains, chained to a Roman soldier. He's about to be interrogated and tried before Caesar. It may well be that his life comes to an end at this point, and yet Paul in this letter can say, ever enough, ever enough, for me, for me. What is enough for Paul? Jesus is ever enough. I want to make three short points this morning. First, there is a discontent that brings improvement. This actually is one of the core themes in Philippians and uh, in one chapter 1, verse 25, Paul actually exhorts and encourages the Philippian church to continue in their progress in the faith and with joy. There's more to learn. There's more to know. There's more to experience. There's more to overflow. There's more that God has got for them. There's more that God has got to do in them. There's more that God has got to do through them. There is more. Discontent. He kind of stirs up a discontent because he wants to see an improvement in their knowledge, experience, and service of the Lord. In Philippians 3.12, talking about himself, Paul says, I want to lay hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. Go online and listen to Mark's fantastic sermon on that. There's more, Paul says, that God has got for me, and I want to receive it. I want to squeeze it all out. I don't want to miss a drop of what God has got for me. There is a discontent that brings improvement. My son, I don't want to embarrass him. He'll tell me off when I get home. I should have asked his permission, but I'm going for it anyway. He's recently started university, and his first essay that he got back was a solid 2-2. I said, well done, son. That's absolutely brilliant. He, but he wasn't contented. And so he worked harder and read other people's essays and asked me how to improve it and asked his tutors. His second essay, he got a really good 2-1. We were thrilled. Couldn't believe it. Abs- well, we could believe it. He's a star. And then he wasn't contented. His third essay of the term He gets a first, and that's my boy. There was a sense that discontentment, coupled with industry and effort and commitment, led to improvement. And there is a sense of that in this letter from Paul to the Philippians. He wants them to know more, to receive more, to be more, to do more for God. And of course, without discontentment, often we won't achieve all that we could. We won't reach our potential. Athletes would never break their personal bests. Without a sense of discontentment, scientists would give up after the first failed experiment. And we wouldn't have this wonderful COVID vaccine, for example. Someone once said, Contentment is the smother of invention. The smother of invention. It is discontent that presses beyond the status quo, just the way that things are. And without discontent, we would still be where we were. We'd be walking everywhere. We wouldn't have invented the wheel or the internal combustion engine or the jet engine. A measure of discontent with creativity and with industry brings achievements. There is a place for discontent the impetus to improve, to go beyond ourselves, I think is God-given. It's part of what it means to be imago Dei, made in the image of God. There is a kind of outgoing in us. It's what sets us apart from animals. They just want food, shelter, and sex. I know a few humans like that. But we're made in the image of God, and we're made for more than that. It's why animals actually don't transcend their environments, Wolves howl at the moon. Humans try and do land on the moon. You see, we're made in God's image, and we're made for more. And part of that, theologians talk about it as the exocentric teleology. How about that on a Sunday morning? The exocentric drive that goes beyond ourselves. It's not just about consuming, but it's about going beyond and achieving. God wired us that way. We're made in His image. You know, God is never less than all he can be, but often we are, and one of the things about Philippians is that Paul is encouraging and exhorting and wooing and challenging and modeling that there is more, and they need to lay hold of it, receive it, and be it. It's right to be discontent with the state of the world, with the injustice and inequality and the immorality and the sexism and the racism and the poverty and the violence and so on. We shouldn't put up with it. We shouldn't put up with the status quo. Well, that's just the way things are. No, we're made in the image of God and we're made to make a difference. God put Adam and Eve in a garden. There were all the wild things and they were to wrestle it into order. We got to work and wrestle to beautify our world, our creation, and our society. But Paul directs his discontent to the spiritual life. And his whole life has been motivated by this, to see the world transformed by seeing people transformed by introducing those people to Jesus who transforms them. He is not content with where they're at, and he wants them to meet Jesus who wants to make the most of them, And in all his letters, this letter, but all his letters, in his whole ministry, his very raison d'etre, he is pushing for people to receive more. Don't settle for too little. There is a form of discontentment that is righteous and seeks to be all that God would have us be and to make society all that God would have it be. So this morning, firstly, I just want to encourage you with Paul to stir up a holy discontentment, a holy discontent. And with Paul, who said, let's press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called us. That's the first point. Holy discontent that brings improvement, and that is the thread throughout this letter and many others. But secondly, and to our reading today, there is a discontent that is to our detriment, there is a discontent that actually is the unworking rather than the good reworking of us. And I want to say this gently this morning, but I'm aiming it at myself, many of us Are discontent with the wrong thing. We're discontent with the wrong thing. You see, Paul was discontented spiritually, but contented materially. Discontented spiritually, but contented materially. The problem is so often in my life, I think in some of yours listening in many of us, is that we're contented spiritually, we've kind of plateaued, but we're discontented materially. And it's actually a topsy-turvy kind of misattribution of value. We've put the emphasis, the weight, the goal in the wrong place, and we've mistook things that are penultimate as ultimate. Paul was discontented spiritually in that he wanted more of God. He wanted to be more like God. He wanted to be more effective for God. Materially, whatever. Whatever. But so often for us, it's the other way around, isn't it? And we're contented spiritually with where we've got, and that'll do. Let's not get too precious. Let's not get too religious. And yet we are going after more things materially, the will of the wisps of the world. Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content, whether in need or in plenty. You see, contentment is not predicated on whether we have plenty or not. Paul says, I've learned to be content without next to nothing. Most of us haven't learned that. I'm struggling to learn that. And we think, somehow, that contentment is found by the acquisition of more stuff. We're stuffed with stuff. But are we satisfied? C.S. Lewis famously wrote, We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, and we can put in their stuff. When infinite joy is offered to us, we're like ignorant children or an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Old Lewis, what a gem. He saw it. So often we settle for too little of the things of God and we go after the wrong things. We need a holy Discontentment. Jesus says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Treasure in heaven. I think we're often treasuring the wrong stuff. What is it with men and their collecting? And their acquisition of stuff. I've been thinking about it this week. I've been sort of comparing myself to Paul and I lost in so many ways. Well, in every way. Boys and their toys. It's not just boys, but I'm a bloke and I'm speaking as one this morning here. For years, I've, I've had a kind of almost obsessive, compulsive kind of desire to acquire certain things and I become an expert in certain irrelevant little areas and want to master it and acquire all the things in it. For years I've had all these different collections. You know, for a long time I collected fountain pens. Most people haven't got one, which is a tragedy. I got about 200. That's a tragedy, (laughs) at least my wife thinks so. And then watches. These days people, they don't even use them, they use their phone do you know what? I've got about 30 watches. What's that about? What is that about? And shoes. I am the Imelda Marcos of Vickers. I've got more shoes than my wife by several factors. And books. I've got about 2,000 books. Honestly, I don't need to buy another book. I'll be dead before I've read all the ones I've got. What is all that collecting about? I've been thinking about it. And leather waistcoats. Some of you think I've only got one, and I wear the same one. You would be wrong. I have many, and they're all the same. According to the Journal of Economic Psychology... Quote, collecting has evolved to facilitate reliable communication between males with respect to their unobserved resource acquisition capacity. I've tried to understand it, and I think it, it means this, that blokes collect things to show off. Paul was content. I bet Paul didn't have any collections. All this desire for just one more, I think is as old as the fall in Eden, where discontentment crept into the garden with the serpent's lie. And the serpent said, God is not good. God is holding out on you. God has held back from you. And yet Adam and Eve, despite being given each other and being there naked in a paradise and being told that they were in charge and they could eat of everything they wanted except just that one tree, the devil says, without that one, it's not enough, never enough, and so on. That's at the core of the lie, never enough, never enough, and then they can't see all that they've been given, and they have to go after that one thing, and bring chaos into the universe. We're stuffed with stuff, but it's never enough and we're not satisfied. Why? Only God can satisfy. Only he is enough. You know, us making more does not make more of us. Shakespeare's a seller who said, poor and content is rich enough poor and content is rich enough. And Paul can say in jail, look, I know what it is to have much. I know what it is to have hardly anything. But I am content because much or little are not the factors that are the source of my contentment. And it's a lie when we think that these things, whatever they are, pens or books or watches or Leather waistcoats, or pay rises, or bigger house, or a newer car, or a better holiday, or whatever it is. This is all comparison and envy so often. And it actually robs us because it can never give us what only God can give. Which brings me to my final point Jesus is the true content of contentment. Jesus. Paul's in jail or under house arrest. We don't know, but we do know that he's chained. We do know that he's confined. We do know he's awaiting uh, trial, and at this point, or maybe he gets released and comes back, within a few years he will be executed by Caesar. If anyone has a right to be fed up, if anyone has a right to be fed up and, and sing in the cell, never enough, never enough, it's Paul. If anyone has a right to say, God, this isn't right. Look, I've worked for you, I've served you, I've suffered for you, I've brought people to you. I don't deserve any of this. I deserve more. I should be in a palace. I should be taking it easy. It's Paul. Paul and yet here he is content. He says, verse 11, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in plenty or in need. Twice in two verses, Paul repeats himself. It's like a butterfly. It just echoes The same point, he underlines it, underscores it so we don't miss the point. Having all this stuff hadn't hadn't made him happy, not having it hasn't not made him happy, or hadn't made him unhappy. Christ is the core, where his contentment comes from. It's an amazing statement. I have learned contentment in any and every circumstance. I've learned it sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, fasting, feasting, plenty, need, lack. He's content. And he's learned it. Doesn't come as a gift, doesn't come through one prayer ministry session, doesn't come through… He's learned it. And how has he learned it. He's learned it through experience. You know, I said I, I like watches. I study them. And in automatic watches, the engine is the mainspring, and that stores all the energy, if you like, the the power. And the power is put into it by winding it up. And as it gets tighter and tighter, there's energy in the spring. And then that energy is released from the spring. To, through the gears that drive the hands. But crucially, in order for a watch to work consistently, whether fully wound or almost unwound, whether hot or whether cold, whether with wrist movement or whether it's just there on your bedside cabinet, how do you keep that consistent time, that consistent ticking and and not have it be erratic and susceptible to its environment and circumstance. A lot of effort goes into this in watchmaking. And uh, the spring requires very special qualities, durability, elasticity, resistance to corrosion and temperature variance. A lot of science goes into this for improvement. And there are very special alloys made of cobalt and nickel and chromium and molybdenum. The most famous make is called Nivarox or Niverox, which means non-variable, non-oxidizing. I hope you're enjoying this this morning. And the perfect spring to drive the watch is the one that doesn't change. there's, There's nothing variable in it. And Paul is like that. And life and his response to a situation has made him like that, content non-variable. He's not up depending on what he's got. He's not down if he hasn't got. He's the same. He's steady. He's stable, non-variable, niverox. It's like a perfect spring. Contentment is not a Buddhist detachment from the materiality of life. It's not some stoic resignation to the hardship of life. It's certainly not some pseudo spiritual machismo. The word that he uses here, autakes, it's, a, it's only found once in the New Testament. Why? Because it's such a rare thing. It's so rare amongst us to be content. Only Paul uses it once of himself here. And it actually is related to the word for an arch, which means, and, and, and that word's etymology means to, to fend off pressure, that comes upon it, and pressure comes upon us that says, unless we have this, unless we are this, unless we achieve this, unless we gain this, then we will not be content. This pressure on our laptops, our organizations and companies with their algorithms looking to make more of you by you buying their stuff. And Paul's able to resist all of this pressure because he's found this contentment. How has he found it? Well, it, it says back in 3 verse 8, for Christ's sake I have lost everything. He found contentment by losing everything. And it was only when he lost everything he realized that he still had Jesus, for Christ's sake, I've lost everything. And it was worth it. He'd lost his friends, his freedom, the future, stuff. But he discovered that Jesus is enough. And you know what really matters. You find out, you discover what really matters to you when things are taken away. And when it's all stripped away from him, he discovers Jesus is still there, Jesus still cares, Jesus is still for him, and Jesus is enough. In house arrest or in jail, in chains awaiting trial, restricted in his freedom, suffering in his body, friends have abandoned him, he hasn't got much, much of the time, but he's not complaining, he's content because Jesus is enough. A minister and friend of mine wrote to me this week. He said, he'd just had a really bad week with relation. relationship. He said, yet another person has really let me down. Another person in my life who I'd posited such value and respect upon and who I wanted to draw on, they have really let me down. He wrote to tell me this. And I replied, everyone will let you down. People are people- And they're human, and they're fallen, and they're often selfish, and, and we will all let each other down. Except Jesus, he will never let you down, never. And so Paul learned the secret of contentment, and he lived in that secret of contentment. And that is that Jesus is enough to flip the song, ever enough, ever enough, ever enough for me, for me. And I wonder if in that secret place, he also heard Jesus singing over him, you Paul, ever enough, ever enough, ever enough for me. You see, Jesus is content with you. Jesus is content. He was content, and this is what we're coming to in the next two weeks of our church life together. He was content to come, to leave glory, to take human flesh, to live amongst us, and that inexorable advance and drive to the cross where he who knew no sin became sin for us, where God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he was content to take your place and to die in your place for your sins, that he might have you with him. He was content with you. What an extraordinary thing. He is ever enough, ever enough, ever enough for me, says Paul, and for you. Amen. The band are going to come up and lead us in a song of worship, but let's just pray as they come, wherever you are, however you're feeling this morning. You know that so often exigencies and pressures and external powers come upon you, tempting and making you feel dissatisfied with who you are, how you are, what you have, where you are. And this morning, let's just ask God to reveal his love to us more in Jesus and to bring that contentment to us. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your spirit today, you would reveal yourself to us. And we pray that like the apostle Paul in jail, in chains, we would be able to say, we don't want to go there, Lord, but we want to be able to say, you are enough. And we want to hear, Lord, today, you say that you're content with us and we're enough for you. We pray, give us a holy contentment. And Lord, where there are areas in our life that need work on, give us a holy discontent with them. In Jesus' name. Amen.